Hello, it's Friday 19th of November. I'm Gary Bellman. Welcome to the third edition of our new weekly news and current affairs travel show. So let's get ready for takeoff. This is the SEA Travel News Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in to the SEA Travel News Show. This week, I'll be talking to Malaysia-based aviation analyst Shukor Yusof about the outlook for air travel in Malaysia and Singapore and the potential impact on air travel demand of Singapore's expanding vaccinated travel lane scheme. Stay tuned for that because he delivers some very astute insights. Plus, we go behind the scenes of Bangkok's troubled restaurant and hospitality sector from my podcast chat this week with restaurateur Jarrett Risley. But let's begin with a look at this week's three biggest travel talking points. And we start this week in Cambodia, which on Sunday surprised Southeast Asia and beyond with its announcement that quarantine-free entry would apply for all vaccinated travelers from anywhere in the world. Not just that, it would begin from the very next day, Monday the 15th of November. So we're now, what, four days into that scheme. A pre-flight PCR test is required for all travelers and a rapid test must be taken upon arrival. They're saying that hopefully you would be clear with your results after about 20 to 30 minutes. Unvaccinated travelers, however, must still undergo a 14-day hard quarantine. Following this up, there have been a lot of excited posts on social media that Cambodia is now the most open country in Southeast Asia. That's quite a slogan. And this certainly throws down the gauntlet to other nations in the region that are embarking on more cautious reopening strategies. Of course, Cambodia's policy is emboldened by its high vaccination rate and its rapid rollout of booster shots. The country has around about 88% of its population fully vaccinated. Uh, and as I said there, it's also rolling out now booster shots to protect its citizens as more travelers are expected to arrive. The challenges, though, particularly in terms of travel and tourism, are only just beginning. Cambodia's had its borders shut for many, many months, just like everywhere else in the region. And throughout this lockdown period, it's stated its ambitions to promote itself as a single travel destination rather than as an adjunct trip to other countries such as Thailand, Vietnam and Cambodia, which it was pretty much famous for over recent years. It therefore wants visitors to arrive and stay longer and spend more time traveling around and exploring the country. That makes absolute sense. But its challenges in achieving this have always been associated with two things. One is direct flight access and the other is marketing budget. Will Cambodia be able to secure the new direct flights from key source markets, especially given the continued absence of Chinese travelers, which is so important to the Cambodian travel economy? And will Cambodia be able to match not just Thailand's marketing spend, but equally importantly, its ability to drive global media coverage? At the moment, that is a really, really important aspect of Uh, engaging with travelers around the world, given that we know demand for travel uh, is quite low. Now, the Southeast Asia Travel Show has been closely tracking Cambodia's progress in recent months, particularly its aggressive vaccine rollout and the opportunities that this affords the government in terms of its reopening. We've recently interviewed Nick Ray of Hanuman Films and Hanuman Travel and Jacques Guichandou of All Dreams Cambodia for their perspectives on how things were shaping up in Cambodia. 
I'll put the links on the show notes to this show on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com, as both podcasts are worth a refresher listen, as Cambodia really now moves forward in trying to reboot its travel economy. Next to Vietnam, where local media has this week been reporting the arrival of the first charter group travelers, initially from South Korea, but there's also more charter flights expected from uh, Japan and Taiwan since the onset of the pandemic. The numbers of these arrivals at the moment seems quite low and also quite confused, with different figures being published by different sources. The inbound tourist arrivals are staying at selected resorts for a minimum of seven nights, and these are in coastal destinations like Hoi An and Phu Quoc. I think there are five current destinations where visitors uh, can arrive. Although they are essentially in seven-day quarantine, there are a limited number of highlights that people can get out and see. In Hoi An, for example, you can get out into the town and you can go to uh, a couple of national parks, but that's about it. Now, these first arrivals, again, slightly confusing. The Vietnam Airlines flight from Incheon, uh, which arrived on Wednesday, apparently featured travelers from Australia, Czech Republic, Denmark, France, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, South Korea, the US, and the UK. According to Vietnamese media, their purpose of travel was tourism activities and visiting relatives. But as we saw during the Phuket sandbox from July uh, through to October, a lot of the arrivals back into Thailand at that time were people not just visiting relatives, but those who had residency and were trying to get back into the country, business travel as well. So there's going to be a mixture, and it seems pretty clear that not all of these visitors are actually tourists. I guess we'll have to wait and see until we get more definitive data as, as the months go along about who's actually visiting on these charter group travel flights that are coming into Vietnam. Um, but it's, it's obviously something that is going to take time to, to shake down. These arrivals sadly coincide with another spike of COVID-19 infections in Vietnam. The country topped 10,000 daily cases on the 18th of November for the first time since September. Hospitalizations and fatalities are also increasing, which is sadly a trend that's being mirrored in some other countries in the region. Overlapping these pilot program arrivals were two other big stories in Vietnam. Firstly, the country introduced a new tourism campaign slogan, Live Fully in Vietnam, which it has to be said is somewhat underwhelming, both in terms of its tone and its substance. We'll see how that one follows through. Secondly, Vietnam Airlines will operate its first direct flight to and from the US. San Francisco will be the destination later this month. This, of course, follows on from other Vietnamese airlines announcing their debut flights to the UK and the US. Now, while media attention often focuses on the inbound potential of these flights from the US, let's not forget just how dynamic Vietnam's outbound sector was becoming before the pandemic. It seems pretty likely that the airlines expect to fill their planes in both directions once Vietnam's border restrictions start to ease more liberally. So let's finish in Singapore, which this week announced its quarantine-free vaccinated travel lane scheme will expand to 21 countries. Indonesia, which will commence as a one-way inbound VTL. India, which accounted for 7% of arrivals to Singapore in 2019, was therefore a top five visitor market. Plus the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Qatar were added to the roster this week. 
In addition, the first VTL flights between Singapore and South Korea also commence on Monday. In addition, Singapore has increased its daily incoming passenger capacity at Changi Airport to 10,000 arrivals. Applications for the new Malaysia-Singapore VTL, which commences on 29th of November, will be accepted from next Monday, the 22nd of November. So currently there are 21 vaccinated travel lane countries flying in and out of Singapore. There are two from North America, 10 from Europe, six from Asia-Pacific, and now three from the Middle East. Speaking at this week's Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore, the Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Hsien Lung said the country will continue its step-by-step -step reopening policy. He said, we are trying to reach the end point of COVID-19 without paying the high price that many other societies have paid. With the Delta variant, you may have most people vaccinated, but you still have quite a lot of people getting infected. He added, right from the beginning, I told our people that we cannot afford to keep the borders closed indefinitely because we make a living from doing business with the world. And if people can't travel to Singapore, if goods cannot ship through Singapore, then we are dead. Singapore's vaccinated travel lane scheme, or VTL, is the most structured, nuanced, and may well prove to be the most effective long-term reopening strategy in Southeast Asia. As the Prime Minister stated, this is all about restoring Singapore's entire economy, not just about attracting tourists. Singapore and its close neighbour Malaysia are in the early stages of reopening their borders to each other, and both countries view this, given their myriad trade, societal and travel ties, as an essential step to rebuilding their economies after the COVID-19 disruption and helping people living in each country to reconnect. So to get an expert perspective on the outlook for Malaysia and Singapore, I called up Shukor Yusuf, who is CEO of Endow Analytics and one of Southeast Asia's most astute aviation analysts. Shukor is frequently interviewed in the media across Asia Pacific, but he graciously found time for the Southeast Asia Travel Show. I'm super glad that he did, because over the next few minutes, he will deliver some unmissable analysis of the current situation and future outlook for airlines, airports, and travelers in the two countries. We started off in Malaysia. This week, Shukor broke the story that Malaysia Airlines is expected to significantly expand its fleet. So I asked him, what are the reasons behind this move and why now? Well, the reasons are very simple. Um, Malaysia Airlines, if uh, we all remember, in 2017, when the then Prime Minister Najib went to Washington to meet with uh, President Trump, and he brought along uh, Malaysia Airlines staff, uh, senior management, and you know, announced, surprisingly, uh, that time, because nobody were was expecting it, uh, that Malaysia Airlines was going to place an order for for those uh, MAX aircraft, uh, as well as uh, also Dreamliner 787 aircraft. Uh, and, and so that was an outright order. It wasn't just, you know, saying, I, I, I'm thinking of getting those planes. They, they actually signed it, yeah. And so when an airline signs an order, it's very difficult to get out of it. So whether Malaysia Airlines needed those planes at that time, or even now is is irrelevant because the order's been placed and there are very very uh, heavy penalties that an airline must pay if you renege on it and 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 particularly also that they've been paying all this uh, 
payments, the deposits on those aircraft that are being constructed. My sources tell me these are close to, in fact, 300 million US dollars. So that's a huge sum. But if you convert it to ringgit, it's well over a billion ringgit. Uh, so what do you do with it, um, especially at a time like this? Uh, so, you, you know, you, you find a choice instead of uh, paying outright for those that they, they've come up with this option of uh, leasing those aircraft, operating leases, so that, you know, they don't lose the deposits that they've already put in it. Uh, but at the same time, it's also an opportunity for them to replace some of those 737-NGs, next generation aircraft that are existing in the current fleet. So those are not terribly old, but they're, you know, they're probably ripe for for sale in the secondary market and, and, and I think you know Boeing will likely help them place those out while the 737 MAX uh, are delivered. So the, the reasons are purely economics. It helps that Kazana National Sovereign Wealth Fund has committed uh, 3.6 million to Malaysia Airlines over the next three, four years and that money will uh, be able to help fund for this opportunities that they're going to take starting next year. Now, we were talking off-air just a moment ago, and we agreed that Malaysia's vaccine rollout has really been pretty aggressive, pretty expansive, and, and pretty well-managed. And that's given the country new options in terms of how it looks at travel. It's still being a little bit cautious, but it is starting to, to turn its attentions to, to reopening its, its borders. Now, Malaysia and Singapore have announced that they will introduce a vaccinated travel lane from the 29th of November. It starts on a pretty low scale. It'll be between Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. What are the expectations for this? And do you think it will be scaled up in the near future? Well, I think for someone like me, who has a vested interest in, in going to Singapore, because you know I, I, uh, I have some business there, I have uh, uh, you know, property there, uh, I used to live there, in fact, before I, I became stranded in Johor Bahru. So I'm also at the same time uh, tampering my expectations that this is going to be uh, easy, it's going to be uh, efficient you know, in some ways. It, it's not. I think the fact that you, you know, I'm in the southernmost part of Malaysia and for me to go to Singapore, I would have to, to go to KL and fly to Changi. That just doesn't work for me personally, as I'm sure it doesn't for many others uh, in, in, in JB. But it, it is a, it's a wonderful thing that it's already being started because we've been shut down, the orders have been up for close to two years. That's a very long time considering that something like 300,000 people used to commute between both countries. So as I said, you know, I think the expectations have to be realistic, be pragmatic, I think, uh, plus Flying is not exactly a cheap form of transportation, so I suspect not many Malaysians or, or Singaporeans, for that matter, would, would, would go to the extent of just you know flying to each other's countries just for the sake of having a, a plate of a meal or, or you know eating durians and those stuff. I think it will be driven by necessity. People who want to go to each other's countries for business or to see family and loved ones, and I think. Uh, eventually, I, I, I suspect before Chinese New Year, things will start to uh, reopen on the roads as well. Or at least I'm expecting, I'm hoping for that <laughs> to happen, uh, so that you can maybe drive or take a bus from 
JP straight to Singapore and vice versa Singapore. Those in Singapore can come to JB by by land as well. So I, I think the the trick or the challenge rather would be to contain and manage the number of people that are likely to want to cross because you you can't possibly allow the thousands of people each day to go. If you take into account the PCR test, there's all sorts of other protocols that health protocols that need to be put in place before one is allowed to go in and out of the border. So the, I, I foresee that there's a huge challenge. It's a real challenge when you're dealing with people, you're doing families, you're doing with, uh, you know, um, the elderly sometimes. Uh, so that that's going to be a challenge. But the, the really good thing is that the governments have, have taken concerted effort to, and they realize obviously that the, the two countries are closely intertwined and, you know, they, it has to to, to open up as soon as possible because both countries rely on each other. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, it's been a long 20 months. The borders have been closed here in Malaysia. What What are the sort of immediate prospects for Malaysia's airline sector? Is, is a, a broader reopening likely? And how is domestic capacity developing? I'm cautiously optimistic. I think uh, Malaysia being a fairly large country, and then that's an advantage. You have Peninsula Malaysia, you've got... Um, East Malaysia, Sabah and Sarawak, which has uh, always been a big destination for uh, people from the peninsula to go for holidays. Uh, so that, that works in terms of the size of the country for domestic air travel, for example. So I, I, I expect to see AirAsia uh, capitalize on that, Malaysia Airlines as well, um, because you know the only way to get from peninsula to East Malaysia is to fly there. Um, so that is, I think, will we'll, we'll incrementally grow uh, as, as they start to allow for, for more people. More flights are being mounted, hopefully. And, and we'll, we, we should see this happening a lot more as we get closer to Chinese New Year uh, in February next year. Because, as you know, I mean, there, there's this huge number of people going or traveling around the country uh, closer to, to uh, Lunar New Year. So that is going to help them. But I, I think, again, you know, I, I caution that the, the cost of, of traveling by air, not just in Malaysia, but anywhere, uh, from now on is going to be substantially higher than what it was pre-pandemic because of the test that you need to take, I think. Uh, and there are not that many flights that are going to be mounted as well. So it's, it's uh, you know, a question of supply and demand. And so the airlines will uh, inevitably uh, structure fares accordingly, i.e. a lot higher than it was before. Uh, so this is something that consumers, passengers will have to learn to live with. Yeah, 100% agree with that. We've talked about Malaysia and Singapore. Let's have a little bit of a closer look at Singapore. Its vaccinated travel lane strategy is starting to expand. More countries were announced this week. How is it being received in the airline sector? I'm guessing they would probably like it to move a little bit more quickly, um, but Singapore is saying that it wants to do this on a graduated basis. Yeah, if, if, uh, this morning, I think it was uh, at the uh, Bloomberg conference, uh, Prime Minister Lee Jian Lung spoke quite extensively on the strategy that the country is putting in place in terms of the reopening of, of its borders, both uh, on the ground and specifically on, on, on uh, entry 
and Changi Airport. Uh, so the VTLs, they have uh, moved on quite uh, expansively in terms of the number of countries that they have uh, now access to in, in Europe and some parts of uh, Asia Pacific, Korea, for example, and, and soon uh, Australia, which is a, a huge destination for Singaporeans. Um, but at the same time, I think they're also, they, they recognize that, you know, with, with the reopening of borders, you need to have, uh, they've made a calculated risk, obviously, uh, in terms of allowing this to happen um, slowly, because as, as we've seen the number of cases have, uh, have increased significantly in Singapore, uh, along with the number of uh, fatalities, unfortunately. But this is something that they have decided to do because uh, Singapore is very unique in the sense that it's wholly dependent on the external world. So now in terms of food, in terms of the uh, uh, survivability, in fact, I mean, it, it, it's, it's absolutely dependent on, on the external world. So that is yeah, perhaps disadvantage. Now, BTLs have been great for Singapore Airlines. Clearly, you know, when I speak to them, they, they do want it to grow quickly, they want it to move faster, they want more countries uh, to have VTLs with Singapore, but again, and that's not going to happen because of the uh, health protocols, the different health protocols in each country, which, which uh, vary greatly, as we know. But um, while VTLs are great, it doesn't actually mean that these airlines are going to quickly make money out of it. And far from it, I think the number of people who are traveling on VTLs are not premium passengers, which are the are the mainstay of Singapore Airlines, for example. I mean, they, they, they are very much dependent on business travelers, corporate travelers. And so those road warriors are not there now. Uh, whether they'll come back in the near future, we don't know because of uh, the, uh, the ease of using social media, Zoom, Microsoft, uh, WebEx, and all that, and, and doing business and doing interviews and, and so on. So I, I, I've known personally of deals that I have been transacted without people meeting face to face. So mm -hmm. it has happened. You know, so companies will start to think, you know, do I need to go to Singapore uh, to business to meet and shake hands with somebody? Um, not necessarily, perhaps. So that is going to have an impact on the, 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 um, the bottom line of Singapore Airlines. But all things being equal, I think, you know, Singapore is, as we know, very practical and they're very shrewd and very, very clever at strategizing on the best way to maximize the exposure to not just the virus, but to maximize how much they can get out of a very difficult situation. So I'm, I'm sure that you know, 2022 will we'll see a lot more different innovative approaches from that country. And we finished this week in Bangkok. On the Southeast Asia Travel Show this week, I chat with restaurateur, cook, and food writer Jarrett Risley. Over the past decade, starting with his acclaimed restaurant Soul Food Mahanakorn, Jarrett built a portfolio of restaurants in the city. Sadly, Soul Food, which was hugely popular among visitors to Bangkok, recently closed, a victim of the pandemic and the restrictions placed on the Thai hospitality sector during COVID-19. Jarrett spoke powerfully and emotionally about the devastating impact on the city's culinary scene, which he cherishes so fondly. 
So I asked him to rewind back to the good old days of the past decade. Would he say that they represented a high watermark for Bangkok's creative dining industry? Here's his reply. See you next week. I absolutely. I think um, between 2012 and 2015, Bangkok was, if not the best place in the world to eat, certainly one of the one of the few. I think when Michelin and the San Pellegrino guides came in, they really distorted the restaurant scene there. I'm happy to say that. Don't put me in your guide. I don't care. I think that they really had a negative effect on what was a interesting restaurant town with creative people doing what they wanted rather than what guidebooks and PR people and corporate sponsors wanted them to do. And it was great. And I'm super proud that I was a part of that. And the people who did build that scene, David Thompson and Dylan and Bo and Gagan before he became, you know, so famous and Paolo Vitaletti, my business partner and Tim Butler from Eat Me. There's this like, there's this whole generation of cooks that came up in Bangkok at that time. And we were just having an, an amazing time and we were riffing off of each other and we were cooking together and having huge events and it was it was wonderful. Mm-hmm.